Welcome to Trinity on Tap, the Old Testament, a podcast series brought to you by Trinity College Queensland, presented by Dr. Paul Jones. 3.3, Genesis 15. G'day, welcome back to Trinity on Tap. The last podcast explored the idea of covenant in a general way. So this podcast is going to look more closely at a key passage in Genesis. And you may be wondering if we're ever going to get out of Genesis. We'll see. The roots of God's covenant with Israel go back to Abraham, right? We've looked at that. And as we will see, he's called the father of our faith for for good reason. So in this podcast, we're going to take a brief look at Genesis 12 and then a more detailed look at Genesis 15. Are you ready? Okay, let's dive in. Listen to these first three verses from Genesis 12, plus the first phrase of verse 4, which I've read before. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I'll show you. I'll make of you a great nation and I'll bless you. I'll make your name great so that you'll be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you and the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him. The first thing we notice in Genesis 12 is simply that God chooses Abraham. And for no apparent reason. Abraham isn't said to be particularly holy or pious. In fact, as a Babylonian, he he probably worshipped Babylonian gods. And at this point, there is no nation of Israel, so Abraham's obviously not chosen because he's an Israelite. Genesis 11.31 mentions that he's from Ur, of the Chaldeans, which is modern-day Iraq. So at this point, we can only gather that God speaks and Abraham hears and obeys. So the big theme that's introduced at this point in the salvation story is that God makes promises, right? I don't know if you noticed, but there's a whole lot of I will statements in those three verses. And that's significant because first, God reveals that he's a promise-keeping God, And second, because the promises that God makes turn out to be foundational to the entire Two Testament salvation plan. So the ways paved for God to demonstrate his character now as a promise keeper. That may not sound very uh, impressive, but do you remember in the last podcast we talked about how God's faithfulness to promises or covenants is what actually makes him righteous? And that is absolutely central to God's character. So what have we got so far in this covenant between God and Abraham? Well, God's part in the covenant is quite lengthy. It's a whole bunch of promises. I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. You will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and so on. But what's Abraham's part? There's not much to it, is there? But this is why I read the first phrase in verse 4. It just says, so Abraham, oh, sorry, Abram went as the Lord had told him. That's all we get. And on one level, this doesn't appear to be much of a response. He doesn't say anything. But in another sense, this is everything that matters. Abram went as the Lord told him. In other words, Abram is righteous according to the terms of this covenant. Why? Because he acted in faith. He trusted God asked him to do one thing, and he did it. God didn't even tell him where he was going. He said, go to a land that I will show you, and Abram sets off. He trusted. 
Now let's flick over to Genesis 15, which builds a lot further on these ideas. And here we see Abraham pushing back a little bit on God and saying, uh, God, you're promising me all these descendants, but I don't even have a son. So how's this all going to begin? I'll read you the first six verses. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I'm your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, You have given me no offspring, so a slave born in my house is to be my heir. But the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. No one but your very own issue shall be your heir. And that word is seed. No one but your very own seed. He brought him outside and said, Look towards heaven and count the stars, and if you're, if you're able to count them. Then he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And then we get that famous verse. And Abraham believed the Lord, and the Lord reckoned it to him as righteousness. So like Genesis 12, this covenant seems to require very little of Abraham, right? No demands are made of him in terms of laws or ethical obedience, and circumcision isn't introduced here. It's introduced a couple chapters later in Genesis 17. You may know that circumcision is the sign of this covenant. So God promises a great deal here, but he doesn't say, now if you want all these things, there are a few things I want in return. We'd expect that, wouldn't we? That God would say, listen, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do some stuff for you, Abram, but I, I kind of need you to do some stuff for me in response. No, that's not how it goes. God's favour, his gifts of grace, they can't be earned. And that's the same in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And we're familiar with Genesis 15, 6, probably more from the New Testament than the Old. Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. So look, I know, I know what you're thinking. Well, I'm guessing what you're thinking. Why are we calling Abraham righteous if he's not doing anything, right? Does he deserve to be called righteous if he's not even doing anything? Well, do these passages in Genesis tell us that trusting God or believing God is just a matter of the mind? Do we simply say, yep, I believe you, God, and hey, presto, we're righteous? Well, not quite. Not quite. God's gracious actions come first, yeah? So in this situation, God's gifts get the ball rolling, and he speaks to Abraham out of nowhere, or Abram. But once God speaks, as he did to Abram, the ball is in Abram's court. And the question for us is, will we believe God and let our lives lean on those promises? Or will we depend on our own strength, our own wisdom, our own ability to get us through life's challenges? What we're getting at here is the question of what does it look like to believe in God? See, there's a very common response that we could make to this profound good news of the Old Testament and New Testament. We can simply say, this is awesome. This is great. I can keep on sinning. I can keep on following my human propensity to screw things up. And there's not going to be any consequences because in my head, I believe in God. If it's all about trust and belief, I'm sorted because those things just happen in my head. Now, that response might sound in line 
with what Abram does. He believes God and God credits him as righteous. But that's not quite what's happening here, is it? If you're thinking, I can resist God all I like as long as I believe in God, well, that point is clarified by Paul in Romans 6 in the New Testament. He says, do we sin all the more that grace may abound? In other words, is it, is it the case that the more I sin, the more God shows me grace? And Paul's answer, of course not. How can we who died to sin go on living in it? In other words, if you truly believe that you were crucified with Christ and resurrected to a new life with Christ, then that old you, that old life, is gone. You can't just look for excuses to get away with doing the wrong thing. That's not who you are anymore. And if you are thinking, well, belief's all in the mind and my actions don't really matter as a Christian, then you may need to read James. James says something different. He says very clearly that our faith is not real unless we act on it. So James 2.17, for example, he says, Faith by itself, if it has no works, is dead. And that's why I read the first part of Genesis 12, verse 4. When God makes covenant promises to Abram in Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3, Abram doesn't just say, I believe you, God, and then carrying on living in Ur. No, he puts his money where his mouth is. He packs up everything and he obeys. He sets off. Do you see what I'm saying? Faith might be all that's required of him. But on the other hand, if his faith doesn't have any actions, it's dead. And that's the emphasis that James puts on this verse, because he also quotes it in James 2.23. He says, you see that faith was active along with Abraham's works and that faith was brought to completion by the works. Thus, the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abram believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness and he was called the friend of God. That's a great phrase there, isn't it? Faith was brought to completion by the works. So I hope you can see what I'm, I'm getting at here. We, we can't just say we believe in God, but then continue to resist being obedient to him. And we can't say we believe in God and then just sit around doing nothing either. Neither of those responses make any sense. In the ancient world, from what we can tell, all covenant agreements involved promises made and expectations upon the other. So let's come back to Genesis 15 now and consider this covenant from the other side. What's expected of God? What's required of God for him to be righteous or faithful within this particular relationship? Well, to get straight to the point, in this passage, God swears on his own life. God swears on his own life. It's a remarkable passage. In the ancient Near East, covenants weren't made the Hebrew phrase is covenants were cut. And the, the Hebrew idiom for cutting a covenant probably is reflected in what we see in this story. That in these covenants, you often had to cut up and distribute the flesh of an animal, right? Either for a sacrifice or eating or whatever. And as we see here in Genesis 15, there's a whole bunch of animals are cut. They're divided in two as this covenant is cut or made. Let me read you some more verses. In Genesis 15, 9, Yahweh says, Bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a 
turtle dove and a young pigeon. He brought him all these and cut them in two, laying each half over against the other, but he did not cut the birds in two. Then from verse 17, it says this, When the sun had gone down and it was dark, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. Now, the obvious questions here, I guess, are these. What's with the animals being split? Yeah? Did you wonder that? What's with the animals being cut in half and laid out on the ground? And also, what's with the smoke and the fire passing between the animal halves? Well, the first question is answered by looking at another uh, portion of the Bible, another passage in Jeremiah 34. We get this helpful parallel, which helps us to understand what's going on. I'll read Jeremiah 34, verse 13. It says, This is what the Lord says, the God of Israel. I myself made a covenant with your ancestors when I brought them out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, saying, and we jump down to verse 18, those who transgressed my covenant and did not keep the terms of the covenant that they made before me, I will make like the calf when they cut it in two and passed between its parts. The officials of Judah, the officials of Jerusalem, the eunuchs, the priests, and all the people of the land who passed between the parts of the calf shall be handed over to their enemies and to those who seek their lives. Their corpses shall become food for the birds of the air and the wild animals of the earth. See, it's clear from that context that the person passing through the divided animals is making an oath, saying, may I suffer the fate of these animals if I ever break this oath? And in answer to our second question, perhaps the even more striking truth about this passage is that it's God who comes down, who passes between the parts of the animal. See, the smoke and the fire are familiar symbols that we've read. When Israel was delivered from um, Egypt, God appears to them, he leads them, in the form of a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. And in other places too, we read of God's presence tied to these two symbols of smoke and fire. So it's not even Abraham who walks between the cut animals. It's not even Abraham who swears on his own life and says, I will keep this covenant. We kind of expect that since God is the king who's making the treaty and Abraham is the lesser party involved. But surprisingly, shockingly, it's God himself who passes between the animal halves and effectively says, may I suffer the fate of these animals if I ever break this oath? Abram is uh, very passive in the whole arrangement. In fact, he couldn't be more passive. Verse 12 says that he's sleeping. So it's God who subjects himself to this sacrificial rite and submits to its terms. What this story, this narrative in Genesis 15 makes astoundingly clear to us is that God is willing to make himself vulnerable for the sake of promises that he has made. Now, of course, reading this as Christians, its message rings true immediately because we know that on the cross, God did participate in human suffering, even to the point of death for the sake of promises that he had made. God puts his own life on the line because 
He is a promise keeper and will always be a promise keeper. So we see these dynamics uh, play out in the New Testament as well. Because in Jesus, God lays his life on the line to keep his promises. And the church takes up this responsibility under the new covenant to trust. And again, I'm not saying that the old and new covenants are exactly the same and that nothing's changed. But I am trying to stress that these dynamics are the same. Salvation is by faith alone. So through Jesus and then the disciples and then the church, God continues. He doesn't begin. He continues to establish his kingdom on earth. And it's on the cross that God most fully demonstrates his righteousness. And what do I mean by righteousness? Covenant faithfulness. Being true to the terms of the relationship. So in wrapping up this podcast, let me just ask you this. What is the purpose of your obedience to God? What's the purpose of your obedience? See you soon. This podcast was brought to you by Trinity College Queensland. Honest answers to tough questions. Visit trinity.qld.edu.au to learn more.